Uh, Father, we thank you. Uh, What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Um, Christ in power resurrected. What, what, What great promises. What great truths to sing. And we join with Christians around the world in declaring the gospel, in upholding King Jesus, in meditating on his life and death and resurrection and longing for his return. And uh, we thank you for that encouragement and for the reminders that these songs do for us. Uh, Lord, as we come now to the text before us, we pray for your assistance, that you would help us to understand what you have for us, that your spirit would energize your word, making it come alive to us and empowering us uh, to believe it and to apply it. And so we pray now for your help as we come. In Jesus' name, amen. War um, has been on our minds this week, hasn't it? And it's been a long time, frankly, since uh, we've thought about war on this scale. Um, During my sabbatical, uh, I had the privilege of spending a couple of days in the Northeast. I spent a day at Princeton University and another day in Manhattan at a library museum. Both of them had uh, letters and, and artifacts related to my dissertation, so I got to nerd out a little bit there in some archives. But as I was flying into Newark, we happened to be on a a southbound approach into Newark, and I was on the left-hand side of the plane, and as I looked out, you see that New York skyline. And as you look toward South Manhattan, uh, you can see where those twin towers used to be. And it brought back the whole 9-11 experience. Of course, the Freedom Tower is right next door, a new piece in the skyline there, but those twin towers remain uh, strangely absent and, uh, and it reminded, it took me back to that, that moment. Maybe you have times like this where you, you remember where you were, you remember what you were doing. And um, I'll never forget when uh, President Bush addressed the nation that day as our own homeland was attacked. Here's what he said. Today our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. The victims were in airplanes or in their offices, secretaries, businessmen and women, military, federal workers, moms and dads, friends and neighbors. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil, despicable acts of terror. The pictures of airplanes flying into buildings, fires burning, huge structures collapsing have filled us with disbelief, terrible sadness, and a quiet, unyielding anger. And he concluded that speech with these words, I've directed the full resources for our intelligence and law enforcement communities to find those responsible and bring them to justice. And you'll remember this line, we will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. And then it was just a few days later on September 20th when addressing the Congress, when he identified the enemy. And I don't know about you, but unless you were outside of the in, inside the, the intelligence community and all that, I had never heard of Al Qaeda before. I had never heard of Osama bin Laden, and yet he became target number one. Al Qaeda, the the terrorist organization, and uh, President Bush pledged to um, go after these terrorists, to go after their leaders, and to bring them to justice. See, President Bush understood that to be successful in any war, you have to know who the enemy is. In fact, to be successful in any war, you have to answer 
some key questions, right? You have to know who the enemy is. You have to know where the battle is. You have to know what our weapons are and how we do we use those weapons effectively. Um, when Russia invaded Ukraine this last week, it was pretty obvious and shocking what was going on. The war on terror, on the other hand, was is much more subtle. It, it, it's not as obvious. And, and I was reminded, even going through the TSA lines at the airport, that the war of terror, can, the war on terror continues. But as Christians, we find ourselves in a much more serious war, not to downplay what's going on in Ukraine in any way, not to downplay 9-11 or any other war for that matter. But when we open our Bibles, we understand that Christians are said to be in a war as well. This is, this is more serious than other wars, as, as serious as those are. We find ourselves in a spiritual war, a spiritual battle, and the stakes are high, and the enemy is powerful. And what I want to do in our time this morning is to talk with you about the nature of that battle, the nature of that enemy, where the battle line is, what our weapons are, what our strategy is, because this is not a war simply for lives that are precious. This is a war for the well-being of souls. And that's what Paul has in mind as he begins his discourse in chapter 10 of the book of 2 Timothy. Hang on a second here, I'm choking myself on my mic. All right, there we go. Uh, what's going on here is, as we come to, to 2 Timothy, I gave you a little bit of, of background here. Um, okay, so, so just, just look up for a second. Um, Corinthians is complicated. Because what happens is Paul goes and he plants the church at Corinth. He stays there for about a year and a half. Everything is going well and he leaves. And then uh, subsequent to that, they write him and say, hey, Paul, we got some questions about this Christianity thing. And, and Paul responds to their questions by writing what we know as 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a letter of response to those questions that the Corinthian Christians had about their faith. And we read it, and by reading 1 Corinthians, Paul even quotes some of their questions, and we get something of, of what was going on there. Okay, so, so far, so good. Well, between, uh, after that letter of 1 Corinthians, there were some ungodly leaders, some false teachers that infiltrated the church. They began to corrupt the doctrine. They began to uh, introduce forms of ungodliness, and their main tactic was to attack the Apostle Paul personally, to undermine his credibility, to call his doctrine into question, and to otherwise uh, remove him as an influence of the church. So, so he hears about this, and so he goes to, first, to, to, to Corinth to see, and, and he is met with accusation, he is met with offense. They actually ridiculed and charged him publicly, so much so that he had to leave the country in something that he calls the painful visit in another letter. Well, subsequent to that, Paul writes a letter back to them calling them to repentance, called the severe letter. And, he's, and he just calls them out to turn away from ungodliness, to turn away from false teaching. And, and praise the Lord, the Corinthians largely repent. And they see the error of their ways and they begin to see through the false teachers and recognize Paul and the legitimacy of his apostleship and the credibility of his ministry. And Titus brings that report back, having visited, and it's like, okay, whew. And so what Paul does then 
in light of that, that good report, he writes the letter of 2 Corinthians back to express his relief, to be encur- to encourage them, to thank them. But as I mentioned during the scripture reading, there's still a pocket of false teachers there. there there's still some rogue influence. And so Paul writes in part to encourage the Corinthians and to thank them and to reaffirm his love for them. But when he turns the corner in chapter 10, he's going to set the crosshairs of his apostolic ministry right on those false teachers and call them out in terms of what's going on and what they're doing in the church. And now here's his strategy. This is really interesting. That's why this is so helpful for us. What Paul did is he recognized that the false teachers are not the ultimate enemy. The ultimate enemy is the spiritual battle, the the internal war that happens in the midst of false teaching and in the midst of sound doctrine. And that's why this is so helpful. Because we say, oh, we don't don't see any false teachers here, hopefully, you know. But, But the reality is the spiritual battle is something that we're all dealing with all the time. And that's what makes his section here so helpful. So in the short time we have here, I just want to talk with you about five strategic tactics for spiritual warfare. And I'll I'll try to develop these for you so you see how it fits in to his response to the false teachers and his admonition to the Corinthians. But just so you kind of know that that, that's the table setting. That's what's going on. And that's the occasion for why he writes what he writes here. Okay, does that make sense? You with me? Okay. so let's look at chapter 10, verse one. And uh, this is kind of just a little introduction. He says, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. And you say, well, what's going on there? Well, Paul's giving us a little bit of the context. One of the charges against Paul from the false teachers was that he was two-faced. He was harsh in his letters, but he was meek and mild in his visits. And Paul wants them to see, as he responds to the Corinthians, that he is actually exhorting them out of love and meekness and kindness. In fact, he says there, I'm exhorting you in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He's being like Christ in his, uh, even to his exhortation to them. But he also says, hey, I'm not going to have to be bold if you would just repent. He has to be uh, straight with them and, and, and get right to the point and even be strong in his language because there was such a danger going on and they're playing around with this false doctrine that will lead them away from Christ. And that's dangerous stuff. So the charge here was that Paul is, it says they're walking according to the flesh, meaning he's just like everybody else, right? Both in his character and his ministry. They're essentially saying, Paul, you're just like everybody else. You're just like the pagan philosophers. You're just like worldly teachers that we have here in Corinth. And so Paul's going to now respond to that charge in the section that we see here, okay? Does that make sense? So here is strategic tactic number one as we think about this broader theme of spiritual warfare. Uh, It's this, ready? Stop living in ignorance. Stop living in ignorance. Look at verse 3 with me. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. And you wonder, how did the Corinthians respond to that? Were they like, oh yeah, Paul, we know that. Or, what do you mean? You know, did the Roman Empire do something overnight? Or, you know, what he's saying is, Corinthians, do you realize that you are at 
war. So it, it, it may be just a reminder. It may be something new to the Corinthians. We don't know. But here's his point. We are at war. Christians are at war. Now, that should be no surprise if you've read your Bible, because one of the favorite metaphors, one of the common themes of the New Testament letters is the fact that Christians are at war. You've read these passages, right? Romans chapter 7. Paul talks about this war that we have inside of us. Uh, James chapter 4 says that the, the quarrels we have with other people come from a war, a spiritual war in our souls. First Peter chapter 2 says the Christian life is a war as we battle these, these uh, lusts of the flesh within. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says we wrestle, right? We strive, we struggle. Uh, those of you in Second Timothy, that we just started the Second Timothy class, you noticed some of those language, right? This is a fight, this is a war, this is a, a conflict, in case you didn't get it, the Christian life is not a vacation. It's not a holiday. It's, it's a war. It's a fight. Paul says in, in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, I fight the good fight of faith. And you say, well, wait a minute. In a traditional war, we, we, we can see that, right? There's bombs, there's planes, there's tanks, there's drones, there's guns, there's fighting, there's killing and destruction. Where is all of that? Well, that's what makes the real spiritual battle so difficult. You don't see it as clearly as you can see physical war. It's there, but it's a, it's a subtle war. It's an internal war. Do you, it's like 9-11. Do you remember after 9-11 happened, and some of you are too young to remember this, which is crazy. That means I'm getting old. But um, you remember this? There were people going, oh, it's a big government conspiracy. This is all made up, and this is... And you know what? There's a lot of Christians doing that, frankly, today. They are living as if there was not a real spiritual war going on inside of them. And, you know, that, that's, that's just point number one. We, we, we can't live in the ignorance that there isn't a war going on or we're going to be an easy target. Now, now, I just want you to remember this, okay? Let's say, how many have a morning commute? Morning commute? None of you have a morning commute. Do you all work at home now? That's right. That's like post, post-COVID. Okay. Do you drive anywhere? Good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, let's say on a drive to work or a drive to school, you had received a report that there was an enemy somewhere along your route with serious firepower, and his sole duty that day was to blow you off the road. Would you drive differently? You'd work at home that day, wouldn't you? Um, it would change your route. It would change your thinking. It would change your strategy. It would change your vigilance. And that's exactly what Paul wants us to think about here. We have to recognize we're in a war. We can't drive down the road of Christianity and think, oh, there's no enemies hiding in the bushes because they're everywhere. And we need to be careful. Okay, so let's not be ignorant. Let's stop living in ignorance and recognize we're in a war and we should live differently. Second strategic uh, uh, tactic here, okay? We need to identify the real enemy. Speaking of enemies, we need to identify the real enemy. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. He says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculation speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 
You say, in a war, how do you know the enemy? Well, when another country invades you, like what happened with Russia and Ukraine this week, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? 9-11 was a little bit more difficult, wasn't it? It wasn't obvious right away. It took intelligence and investigation to figure out the enemy. And what's interesting is, I think a lot of Christians, just like we do in the 9-11 situation, we're not totally sure who the enemy actually is. Does it surprise you, in light of the background of this letter, that Paul doesn't say, your enemy is the false teachers? Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say that. Well, look back with me at the text. Who is the enemy, according to Paul? Just just back at the text. Look at verse 4 and 5. Who's the enemy? Notice this. We bring destruction of, what's your Bible say? Fortresses. We destroy speculations and lofty things, whatever that means, and we take every thought captive. Now this, this, guys, this is so helpful. The false teachers are bad. The false teachers are wrong and they are a threat. But that's not the enemy. The enemy is not ultimately the false teachers. The enemy is what? Their message. It's their message. It's their doctrine, it's their ideas, it's their thoughts, it's their speculations. The, the, the enemy of the Christian is a false message. And you say, well, why is that? Why is the message of false teachers, why is false doctrine, why is lies of all sorts, why are those our true enemy? Well, we'll look back at the text. He tells us. He says these, these lofty things, these speculations, these thoughts, what do they do? They raise themselves up in prideful arrogance over and against the knowledge of God. That's why they're enemy number one. Listen, the things that we believe that are wrong, the lies that we embrace that are not true, the things that we entertain that go against Scripture, that call into question God's character, that raise themselves up over God as if we stand in judge of the Creator, are the most dangerous power in the universe, according to Paul. It's those ideas because they assault God and His Word. You say, why is that important? And and I, I confess... Uh, Terry, you probably, how many times have you mentioned this verse in all your years of teaching? I mean, dozens and dozens. Me too, right? I mean, just dozens and dozens. I love that, you know, we talk about this in biblical counseling. We talk about it in discipleship. We talk about it in life. We talk about it with our kids. You know, take every thought captive. Be careful what you believe, right? I saw something, I think, for the first time this last week in all the years of loving this passage. There's a connection between the wrong things that we believe, that's true, the true enemy in spiritual battle, and an ultimate issue. And, and I used to think that when you think lies, when you think false doctrine, it leads you to the sin. And that's true. It does lead you to a sin. But that's not Paul's focus. Why is he so concerned about the false doctrine of these ungodly teachers that would introduce lies and ideas and false doctrine? Can I show you? Flip the page to chapter 11. <laughs> you just keep reading and he answers the question, right? Why is this so uh, such a big deal? Look at chapter 11. Paul tells us, why am I so concerned? Chapter 11, verse 3, he says, I am afraid that as the serpent, what's the next word? 
deceived, right? There's the lies, there's the false doctrine. As the serpent deceived Eve, that your minds will be led astray, here it is, from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Now, look up for a second. Did you see what he just did? He says, false teachers are bad. Bad doctrine, it's bad. But here's why it's really bad. Because wrong ideas, wrong doctrine, false teaching, speculative ideology will distract you from a pure devotion to Jesus. And that's why it's so dangerous. Yes, it will lead you into sin, and the Bible talks about that in other places. But Paul's main thrust here is that it will distract you and deceive you away from where your attention ought to be, and that is on Jesus alone. Do you see that connection? You've got to read you know, the whole thing to see that connection. But that's what, he, he does not want to see the Corinthians distracted from Jesus. And, and here's a footnote. It doesn't have to be some horrible thought or horrible doctrine or really, really bad idea to distract you from Jesus. It can be something good, can't it? It can be something we would say, well, that's, that's nice, but it distracts you from Jesus. And Paul says, that's what I'm worried about. I'm worried that you would be distracted from Jesus. And so I'm telling you this so that you would have undistracted purity, undistracted devotion. He says the same thing in the first letter, in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, I want you to have unhindered service and undistracted devotion to Jesus. And that's why it's so dangerous. The enemy of the Christian life. Ready for this? You say, what's the enemy, Keith, in the Christian life? The enemy in your life and my life is anything that distracts you from Jesus. That's it. Now, where does this false doctrine come from? And why is it so dangerous why were the Corinthians getting caught up into this? Well, this is really pretty interesting once you recognize what's going on here. Do you see, look at verse 5. He says, we are taking every, go back to chapter 10, right? If you're in 11, go back to chapter 10. Where does this false doctrine ultimately come from? Well, back to chapter 10, look at verse 5. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Do you see that little word thought? If you track that word through the, the letter of 2 Corinthians, this is really interesting. That word thought is always linked to the work of Satan in the life of Christians. Isn't that interesting? That what we're seeing here is ultimately a satanic idea, a satanic thought, a satanic doctrine. In other words, these ideas, these thoughts, these speculations that deceive and distract us from Jesus are satanic in origin. Now you know that, because Paul's going to say in Ephesians, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, right? He says, people are not ultimately the enemy. It's the doctrine, it's the ideas, it's the distractions, it's the, it's the thoughts that come from Satan himself. People are not ultimately the enemy. It's the spiritual powers of Satan that are ultimately the enemy. Now, you guys understand that, that as Christians, we fight an unholy trinity. We have three enemies, right? This is the trifecta of temptation in the Christian life. We have Satan, who's called the God of this world, the enemy of God. He's a real being, even though apparently about half of American Christians deny his existence. And he's the enemy. That's number one. What's the second enemy in the Christian life? The corrupt, sinful culture. Sometimes we call that the world. 
because Satan is the God of this, of this world. That's how he works. I told my kids last night, I said, you know, our biggest enemy is not when a guy in a red suit with a pitchfork and horn shows up at our front door. Our biggest enemy is when we turn on Netflix. Our biggest enemy is when we flip on the news, when when we go to Walmart and we hear conversation, when we flip on a new song on our iTunes account, when we, when a podcast downloads, when when we interact with people at the soccer game, when, when we, when we read, uh, some blog article that, that the, the real enemies are the God of this world's influence through the ungodly culture around us. That's how he works. Now, if you're tracking with me, you're thinking, okay, the enemy is wrong ideas that distract us from Jesus. Well, where do wrong ideas come from? The world. They're everywhere. You said there's three enemies, right? It's an unholy trinity. So there's Satan, that's enemy number one. There's the world, that's enemy number two. What's the third enemy? Me. And you. Because even as Christians, we have residual fallenness inside of us. We have sinfulness resident in us. And the reality, listen to me, the reality is Satan's influence, the world's influence would not be near as influential in our life if it did not resonate with that remaining sin within us. And that's why it's so dangerous. So the world, the flesh, the devil, the, that, that, those are, those, that's the unholy trinity. That, that's, that's the enemy that we face. And all of those work together to produce ideas, thoughts, doctrines, lies, speculations, worlds, values, philosophies, and beliefs that oppose God and his word. Okay, so that's the real enemy. The, uh, the real enemy is what you think. We have to be very careful of these influences around us. Okay. Now, if that's true, number three in our tactics here, we need to reject fleshly weapons and tactics. Reject freshly, fleshly weapons and tactics. We're trying to get a handle on some, some strategic tactics for spiritual warfare. And we gotta know, number one, that we're in a war. Number two, we gotta know who the enemy is. And number three, we need to know what our weapons are and are not. And look at verse three. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. That's a little bit confusing because he's using the word flesh there two different ways. That word flesh in your New Testament can get used over a half a dozen different ways. So you've got to be careful. So, so here's what he's saying. He's saying, though we live as human beings, we do not engage in spiritual battle by human standards or worldly reasons. That's what he's saying. He's saying, Christian, you can't engage this war like the rest of the world. You can't do that. You say, how did Paul deal with the false teachers? Did he attack them personally? No, he exposed their satanic ideas. That's what he did. So let me ask you a question. When you see spiritual battle, when you see things out there that are wrong, when you see things in your own heart that are wrong, that are indicative of spiritual battle, things that are lies, things that distract you from Jesus, how do you respond? Well, I will confess that way too often when I see problems, I think a political solution is the real deal. I think a cultural solution is how we're going to fix this. 
And see, we are prone to do exactly what Paul is warning us here not to do. And that is, he says, you can't engage this battle by doing what everybody else does. By voting the guy out. Or getting the right legislation. Or trying to change the culture in some way. It's not a relational, uh, you, you don't engage in education and, and some sort of societal thing. You don't see people as the ultimate enemy. Just get the right people in, get the wrong people out, everything will be okay. Paul says, that's worldly. You need something stronger and something more reliable in your spiritual battle. Now look, at he gives us a hint of what it is. Look back at the text. He says, what we have are divinely powerful now now it's that's an interesting word it literally says something that is made powerful by god himself and he links that in verse five to the knowledge of god and what he's saying what he's saying you know this our greatest weapon that is powerful and energized by god himself (laughs) is his word It's the knowledge of God. Where do we get that? In the Bible. You say, let's test that. When Jesus went went toe-to-toe with the devil in Matthew chapter 4, what did he do? Lightning bolt from heaven? You know, fire down like Elijah? No, what did he do? He said, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, that's where the power was. And he rebuked the devil by quoting Scripture. That's where the power is. That's where our weapons are. That's where we get this knowledge that God... I I love that phrase. That knowledge is made powerful by God himself. Paul's going to say in that great section of Ephesians talking about spiritual battle, he's going to say, what is the sword of the spirit whereby we stand firm against the schemes of the devil? That sword of the spirit is nonetheless than what? The word of God. You know this. So so we got to be careful. Because I do what maybe you're tempted to do, and that is we see these things going on that are wrong in the world, and we see these battles, and we want to engage them with the wrong weapons. Not political weapons, not societal weapons, not cultural weapons, not relational weapons. We come to the Word of God, and that is how we do hand-to-hand combat in spiritual battle. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, is this the message, Pastor Keith? where you tell us we need to be reading our Bible more and we need to be in the Word more. Absolutely it is. Yes, you caught me. That's exactly it. Because that's, that, that's the power of God for salvation and it's the power of God in spiritual battle. That's how we undergird, that's how we undermine the schemes of the devil. Okay, so reject fleshly weapons and tactics. Number four, we need to engage the real battlefront. Engage the real battlefront. We've got to keep moving here. But this is interesting. So, so we know we're in a battle. We know what the enemy is. We know what our weapons are and what, what they shouldn't be. So where do we run in the battle? Where, where do we go? Look at verse 5. We are destroying speculation and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Let's see if you got it. In this spiritual battle, where's the battlefront? Right here. Your mind is the battlefront of spiritual warfare. Uh, I remember years ago, um, I remember the specifics. Someone came to our church and they were having some parenting. They came to our counseling ministry, having some parenting issues. And uh, she just couldn't understand why her kids were continuing to disobey because every night she prayed Satan out of the bedroom. 
And it's like, well, it's good to pray for your kids. But praying against Satan and praying hedges around a bedroom is not the battlefront. The battlefront is not some weird satanic engagement thing that are popular in in books and blogs. Spiritual battle is right in your mind. And that's where the battle takes place. That's where we need to focus. In this spiritual battle, the mind is the playing field. See, speculations, which are ideologies, ideas, knowledge, lofty ideas that are raised up, pridefully raised up against the knowledge of God, thoughts, those all happen in the arena of the mind. And that's where spiritual battle takes place. Now, Satan is smart. Satan is strategic. Satan knows you. One of the things that came out of my sabbatical is I discovered a really amazing book on uh, the devil and his tactics and whatnot. It was one of one of John Newton's favorites, and I was reading some of this this last week. And and you just you just appreciate how tricky Satan is, but he really only has one tactic, and it's to deceive you. That's it. It's to deceive you. That's why he's one of his names is Deceiver. That's why he's called that. And you know this. What, what happened back in Genesis 3? The serpent deceived Eve, right? What, what does John, or, uh, Jesus say in John 8? He calls the devil a liar and the father of lies. In Acts chapter 5, Paul, uh, 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 Peter says to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Uh, another false prophet in Acts 13 is called a man who was full of deceit and a son of the devil. You say, why is this? Because that's his tactic. It's to get you to believe lies by deceiving you, by tricking you into doing that. And um, if you're in Corinthians, just uh, flip back to chapter 11 again. So now he looks at the false apostles and he says, Hey, Corinthians, you know what these false apostles are doing. They're doing the same thing that Satan does. It's everything that everybody who is influenced by Satan does, and that is he deceives. Chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, verse 13, he says, Such men are false apostles. What does he call them? Deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Verse 14, for no wonder, even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his certain, his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. It's the same thing. So the, so the, the temptation here is that we would believe something, we would be deceived into believing something that is not true, and that distracts us ultimately from devotion to Christ. Now you know this. That's why the Bible is always saying, be careful what you think. How many times does the Bible say, renew your mind? How many times does it say, think on what's true? Why is it, watch over your heart with all diligence? Why does it say that? Because that's where the battle lies. It's a matter of being deceived into believing and thinking things that aren't true. And that leads you into sin and distracts you from devotion to Christ. So where is the battlefront? As Christians, we need to remember that the beaches of spiritual Normandy are between your two ears. That's where the battle lies. Um, and we need to be careful to make sure that we're not distracted from other places and put our time and effort there. Okay? Fifth strategy. 
We know we're in a war. We know what the enemy is. We know what our weapons are and are not. We, we know something of where the real battlefront lies. Now, now let's look at the hand-to-hand combat strategies here by talking about an effective strategy we can fight with. This is so helpful. Look at verse 5. Paul writes, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Did you notice in this section all of the military terminology? Did you notice it? Four verses... Nine military terms. I call these the G.I. Joe terms of the Bible. I'm dating myself a little bit there, I guess. But nine different military terms. Because he's saying this is spiritual battle. This is where your fight and your effort and your conflict is going to be. It's that civil war inside of you to believe what is true and to lean on the word of God, to have undistracted devotion and purity there and not be led astray. And deceived in other things. But I love the imagery here. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing. How, how arrogant is it to say that you know better than God? How arrogant is it to say this is what's life about, what life is about and not what scripture says life is about? How prideful is it to say I know better what to do in this situation than the God who made me? And knows me and loves me and died for me. We need to see that as we take our thoughts captive, as we look out for deception, that underneath all that is a prideful, arrogant bent that we all have that says we know better than God. And I love what Paul says here. He uses graphic military language. Look at this. We take every thought like that captive. That's not strong enough. That word take captive means to interrogate as to a a prisoner of war. You ready for this? You take everything you hear, everything you come across, everything you read, everything you look on social media, everything blogs, every thought that comes into your mind and you spiritually waterboard it to bring it in conformity of Jesus. This is take no prisoners. This is to see those fallen thoughts that lead you away from Christ as enemy number one. And we treat them for what they are, prisoners of war. Every rogue thought must be made to bow to King Jesus. That's what he's saying. Now, um... We're friends, right? So we can talk. How does this work when you're waiting on the Crescent train? I'm serious. That's where I live. Where do you live? I'm sitting there and I'm thinking all sorts of things that are wrong. I'm thinking things like, They should fix this problem. They're taking too long to fix this problem. This is my road. Don't don't they know that I'm going to be late and I'm getting agitated and irritated? Why? Because I'm not taking my thoughts captive. You know what? I was talking to my kids last night. You know what this is like? You open your Bible to read and 3,000 other things come to mind. 
and 109 distractions. And uh, do you understand? That's not accidental. That is war. And you have to take those thoughts captive. You have to see those intrusions as prisoners or enemies that need to be prisoners of war in your mind so that you can focus on undistracted devotion to Jesus. You know what it's like when you're having a conflict or an argument with somebody else? All those lies that you're, that you're deceived into believing? Well, this is all their fault. Well, if they just have done this, Right? Well, well, if, if, if they didn't do that, then I wouldn't have had this. And we blame them and we defend ourselves. What's all that? That's spiritual battle in your kitchen. And you need to take those thoughts captive because not only are they leading you to sinful responses, unforgiveness and conflict and harsh words, they are distracting you from pure, undistracted devotion to Jesus. So we need to engage these, these ordinary moments of life by taking every thought captive. You know, when our kids used to go to the beach, um, now they bodyboard and body surf and do, you know, young adult stuff. But one of their favorite things was that, that, that sifter. Remember those little sand sifters that our kids had? You know, and you stick it in the sand, you pull up. Oh, there's a shell. Oh, there's a crab. You know, and you do that. You, th- that's, that's the picture here. Paul says you make your mind to be driven by a spiritual sifter called the Word of God, and you don't let anything in your life go outside of that. Everything passes through that sifter, and nothing gets through that is not in conformity to the Word of God and in obedience to Jesus that leads you to pure and devotion to Him. Your enemy is anything that distracts you from devotion to Him. So we take every thought captive to obey Jesus. You know, if you think about it, every cognitive act, every moment of thought is an occasion for either devotion to Christ or distraction from Him. And that's where the real spiritual battle lies. So let's pray for each other, let's work together, let's come to God's Word, and let's battle valiantly for him. Ask yourself this question. What's distracting you most from him this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us such spiritual intelligence that helps us to see where the battle really lies. And I pray as we fight this civil war inside of us, to think on what is true and to believe your word over other ideas and other thoughts that we're prone to be deceived by that that move us into sin and away from Christ. Will you help us to fight and to engage in this battle constantly by means of your grace? Help us to help each other. We, We need to help with one another to see these challenges that we face. And Lord, like the Corinthians... Uh, we pray with the Apostle Paul that we would have a pure, undistracted devotedness to Jesus and we would view anything that distracts us from that as the satanic spiritual enemy that it truly is. Lord, give us grace and help. We love you. We thank you that you're working in us. In Christ's name, amen.